Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Action Replay here on DCUFM. My name is Sean Breslin, and I'm joined by Sean Crosby. We're here to look at all the week's sport, and oh, there was a lot of it. There was a lot of it, but I think the best place, the only place to start is the GAA. Um, an incredibly emotional weekend, of course, marking the centenary of Bloody Sunday. We saw just so much, and I think we we have to start with the football, and we have to start with Tipperary on the day that they celebrated the centenary of the event in which they played. They played Dublin on that day in 1920. They won their first Munster title in 85 years, beating Cork 17 points to 14, and. This just felt like something that was meant to be. They were wearing commemorative jerseys, uh, white with green as opposed to blue with gold, because that's the color scheme that they were wearing in 1920 when 14 uh, people lost their lives at the hands of the Black and Tans. And from the word go, it felt like they were in a position where they just thought, it is unacceptable, it is unthinkable, it is unimaginable that we could possibly lose this game today. And it showed in their play. They just really just imposed themselves on Cork from the get-go. I think there was only they only trailed once in the entire game. And it did feel as though that when they got hold of the lead, they would just simply refuse to relinquish it. You, every player in every sport goes onto the pitch wanting to win, but there are just times where it goes deeper. We saw that in 2007 with the Ireland rugby team when England came to town, and Sean, it was another case of it here. They just would not be beaten. Yeah, like you said, they they um they got they got that lead and they just didn't give in really. It was that's almost nearly more impressive than the kind of fairy tale comebacks that we've seen as well. Um, and like there's a lot of standout performances as well, like Michael Quinn Levin and Connor Sweeney. Um, and like you said, Cork only led once, it was only four minutes. The lead only lasted a minute long. It really was like a day with destiny for tip. They just they got a hold of it, and that was it. Really, they they knew themselves that this was it. And it is fitting, it absolutely is fitting that 100 years on, they would go and win the Munster Football Championship. 100%. Michael Quinlan, and as you said, playing centre forward was really one of their talismanic figures. And I remember he scored an outstanding point. I think it was near the end of the first half. And the cameras picked up this great shot where he just gave this beaming smile. And you just... That was kind of encapsulating the day that it was for Tipperary. Just uh, something where everything fell into place, the stars aligned, God was with them. And Cork, I wouldn't say they were disappointing, but it was it was always considered a shock when they got through Kerry. Yeah. Um, they just, they, on any other day, I think maybe six, seven times out of ten, they would get that. They would get that win, get that monster title, and move on to an All Ireland semi final. But they, they just, they just couldn't live with Tipperary on this occasion. Yeah, and I think, I think you kind of argue almost that they peaked too soon. Almost with that win against Kerry, it was such yeah. a surprise. I think, I think they probably surprised themselves 
And I think uh, that that was kind of the highlight of it all. And then you kind of realised, you know, there's actually one more game left to play in this. And I think they just couldn't rise to the occasion again. I think that, that must have taken, the carry win must have taken so much out of them. They just couldn't rise to the occasion again. And But it really was, though, it was tips day. And I think Cork, um, they looked kind of, they, like they had the one lead, but they weren't necessarily really in it. It was kind of cruise control for tip. They just took charge. And I don't know exactly why, but Cork were a little bit lackluster, maybe, or didn't quite have the same punch as Tipperary did. We'll talk about, um, you mentioned peaking too soon, and that could be the case with Tip, but we'll get to that in a second because you thought the day was over, but no, there was still an Ulster football final to be played, mm. Donegal facing Cavan, and actually a replay of last year's final, which Donegal won by five, but that margin kind of flattered Cavan. They got two late goals to kind of put yeah. put a bit of gloss on their their scoreline from a, from a losing perspective. And I remember I was talking to someone earlier in the week. Um, they were talking about how Cavan came from 10 points down against Monaghan and won. How Cavan came from 10 points down against Down and won. Well, if Cavan go 10 points down against Donegal, this man said, they'll end up losing by 20. But yeah. fortunately for them, it never got to that because Cavan... I think channeled the spirit of Tipperary. They looked at what had happened there just uh, about an hour before they were due to throw, throw in an Armagh and said, there it is. That's the proof. It is possible for us to do this. And they just went out there. And Donegal didn't know what to do. I think they were kind of almost mentally preparing themselves for the almighty battle that would be Dublin in the semi-final and they wouldn't weren't expecting that almighty battle to come two weeks early. The most inferior Cavan looked was when they were down a man for 10 minutes after uh, one of their midfielders was put in, in the in the sin bin for a black card. Yeah. Um, they went from three points up to three points down on that occasion, but as soon as they were back to a full complement, it was just full speed ahead again. Yeah, and... Um... I think, yeah, yeah, I think you're right in saying that Donegal were almost just too focused. They, they almost saw this game as a given, I think, and too focused on that fixture against Dublin. I would say in the first half they did, and probably did help, it was probably the period where Cavan were down uh, due to the black card. Donegal were like a lot more clinical in that first half, I thought, but then the second half it kind of waned a bit. Like, yeah, near the end of the game where it was kind of imperative that they had to take every score, they kicked two really bad wides. Uh, yeah. The sort of thing that you would just not expect a team yeah. of Tony Gall's calibre to, to do. And the goal at the end was the only... It was actually the only time where I was watching and I felt certain that Cavan were actually going to do it because I was thinking, surely not again. Donegal... Are, are just are, are too good an outfit just to let this go away. But Cavan, they took the belief from Tipperary. They took the belief from the fact that in two of their previous three outings, they'd come back from a place where it it's not logical to come back from, from a Gaelic football perspective. And their first Ulster title in 23 years was richly deserved yeah it was really and um yeah it was i think that conor Madden's goal was probably 
the only point anyone kind of, or uh, certainly people at uh, Cavern's Bar is kind of a sigh of relief and you finally relax at that point. Um, and he was fantastic, I thought. But uh, I think I think it's kind of a similar thing with Tip as well. Like we keep on mentioning, it was almost like a day with destiny nearly. And I think Cavan realized, like you said, they were down by double figures in both of their last two games. And I think they probably looked at it and said, like, we've we've worked this hard to get here. Can't you couldn't you couldn't lose after slogging their way through the last two matches and then just to be beaten narrowly. It would have been it would have been a shame. And I think that's that's what spurred them on really in the end. I mentioned that Donegal were maybe focusing a bit too hard in the semi-final with Dublin. That kind of gave away what happened in the Leinster final. So, spoilers. But like we said last week, it was never in doubt that Dublin were going to win that game because you'd seen... There's, there's no, it's not even any point just trying to explain it. Everyone knew that Dublin were going to yeah. win that game. And I suppose... On a on a weekend where it felt like destiny that Tipperary would win, a uh, hundred years after the game they played was interrupted by the Black and Tans, it would only make sense that Dublin would do the same, and they were just clinical against me. I mean, I remember Pat Spillane, he didn't even bother going into any kind of in-depth analysis at halftime. He just said, "This is men against boys, and it's it's kind of it's it's football." As it's meant to be played, Pat Spillane said. And no matter how much anyone may hate the dubs, you kind of, you just have to sit back and admire what they're capable of. Oh, absolutely. And they're, they are a, it's a generational kind of set of players they have, and they are absolutely fantastic. Um, what I found interesting was actually on the Sunday game, they were talking about whether or not our teams that get to a Leinster final, are they psychologically already defeated? I think that's that's clearly an effect that Dublin are having. Um, and it was just I, I just thought it was an interesting kind of um, look into it because they are. It's just a was it ten in a row now for Leinster? Ten in a row in Leinster. It's an it's a unimaginable, unprecedented kind of dominance that they have. Like to be honest, I I didn't even really bother watching it. What like you said, it was an absolute given. Um, and to be honest, I can't really see anyone stopping them going all the way again to be honest we will preview those uh all ireland football semi-finals next week on the show uh, it'll be dublin versus cavan and mayo versus tipperary astonishingly as we um as we posted in our instagram story at dcfm sport the exact same all ireland semi-finals from 100 years ago and in 1920, the final was between Tipperary and Dublin, and it was won by Tipperary. So maybe that's a sign of things to come. We'll ascertain yeah, as to whether that'll happen next week on Action Replay, so tune in for that. But amidst all the chaos and drama of the football, one would almost forget that there was hurling this weekend, but there was. Um, All-Ireland's hurling quarterfinals on Saturday, uh, two of them between Galway and Tip and Clare and Waterford. And Galway-Tip is the type of hurling match that you could just show someone who's um, dropped onto planet Earth from Mars and has never seen anything, not just hurling, but sport before. You could show them that game and they would just 
fall in love with hurling because it's it was two teams kind of at the top of their game just going for each other some really high quality stuff throughout Galway did win I think deservedly so and um they're on to a semi-final now against Limerick which I I called last week and said I really want to see that game because I want to see what a full-strength Galway can do against Limerick after they just didn't show up in the All-Ireland final two years ago. But a terrific game. Yeah, it was. And like you said, like you could show anyone that. and It was an absolute classic, really. Um, Joe Canning was brilliant for them. Uh, but it was, it was really end-to-end stuff. And for a while, I think Galway shot 10 wides. And I think there was one point where you're kind of looking at it thinking... Is this going to be an almost similar result to Kilkenny? It was really a bit touch and go towards the end. It was Aiden Hart's goal, which is fantastic. It was a quality finish. Uh, kind of just finished off a depleted Tipperary. But it was an absolute classic. And like I said, Galway did deserve it in the end, despite looking a bit shaky at times. Yeah, I, I, I do think that Galway... Well, it's kind of obvious that Galway need to really... Work, work on their shooting, uh, get that wide count down because a team like Limerick are not going to let them away with that. Kilkenny didn't and Limerick won't. Uh, but Kilkenny won't be playing Galway, at least not yet. They'll be playing Waterford, who beat Clare in a game that wasn't as good. But um, Clare, they had the chance really to to make it kind of a grandstand finish. Um, but they went for goal, their shot was saved, and Waterford went straight down the pitch, stuck it over. And that was game over, really. It was a four-point swing. They could have been two down, instead they were six down. And Waterford ended up winning by 10, which I think flattered them a little bit because they weren't terrific either. Uh, Stephen Bennett did really well for Waterford. Um particularly with his with his free taking but i did watch this game and think whoever it is that comes out of this and it didn't end up did end up being waterford they are going to be in for a really really tough time against kilkenny yeah you're right they will be um i think i don't know i think some people or majority of people i think might have been slightly surprised by the winner of this waterford coming out i think um tony kelly's injury was a Big loss for Clare as well. But, um, yeah, no, will be Kilkenny would be a completely different challenge. It wasn't as, as close of a game. It wasn't as, as exciting as the Galway Tip one. But I think the Waterford game is another good example, kind of similar to the Tip Court game, as in once they kind of had a lead, they just kept on picking off points and just kept maintaining it, which, again, is still quite impressive. But I don't think they will get, they will get that kind of leeway with, Aside like Kilkenny. So you expect Kilkenny to win next week, do you? Yeah, I do. I think I think it'll be a serious surprise if Watford can come out with a result there. I, I fancy Kilkenny the most. Yeah, Kil- I feel like Kilkenny would put down a marker and say to the winners of Galway and Limerick, okay, this is what you have to live up to. Mm. Uh, and speaking of Galway-Limerick, I feel like that's going to be another game in the vein of Galway tip that we saw uh, this past this past Saturday. How do you see that one going? Um, it is hard to call because it depends on what kind of Galway you get, really. Can they sort out their problems with 
shooting wides and kind of holding on to a lead a bit. I don't know, really. I Maybe on current form, Limerick look like the better side at the moment. Uh, there was a bit of rugby on this weekend, more of the Autumn Nations Cup. Uh, Ireland were kind of taught a lesson against England. I think uh, a majority of people in our poll on our Instagram story picked Ireland to win. But it kind of became evident from early on that we were coming up against a team that were just better than us. It was... Um, we were able to get a try near the end, which prevented uh, a whitewash. But England are just firing all cylinders. There's a reason they're Six Nations champions. There's a reason that they were in the World Cup final a year ago. They they are the benchmark now. Ireland were a couple of years ago when we won the Grand Slam and beat New Zealand. But since Joe Schmidt left, it's been mixed I think and I I don't actually blame them because we kind of knew people might forget because it was such a long time ago but back in February we were kind of preparing for a fallow enough Six Nations because I think Andy Farrell needed a bit of time to to get settled in the job but the fact that by the end of it however many months later that was we were in a position where we knew that if we did this in our last game, we'd win the championship. I think people forget about that and will now look back on the Six Nations of 2020 as what could have been, which I think is unfair. Um, so disappointing for sure this Saturday, Sean, but I think it's, it's fair to give uh, Andy Farrell a bit of time. Yeah, I think so. I, I think Ireland at the moment are a team in transition really. I think you can see that as well. But um I like you said, England absolutely are the benchmark. They're just you could see the difference because I think that was something we mentioned on last week's show as well was you know the victory against Wales was it was good, but kind of it was only Wales and England would be a real test. And you could see the difference in the two teams, England and Wales, like the difference in the level of opposition was abundantly clear. Um, and Johnny Mays already tries just kind of killed off any real competition. The second one in particular was fantastic. I think he ran nearly half the half of the. Oh yeah, that was fantastic. But um, like you can see, Ireland aren't, aren't nearly kind of the team that we once were. And even like small things like Chris Farrell should have scored a try realistically, but it just really didn't fall his way, and it's stuff like that. But like you said, he. Uh, Andy Farrell deserves time, I think, and they're just a team in trans- transition at the moment. And hopefully, for the next kind of major set of games, they can get things to go better. Some other stuff that happened in the rugby: Fiji have had a, a COVID outbreak in their team, so they're not able to play any of these uh, Nations Cup games, which kind of raises the question again as to whether these matches should even be happening in the first place. Uh, there aren't actually any such issues in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, the governments of Australia and New Zealand have pretty much got COVID under control. The New Zealand Prime Minister in particular has done a, a fantastic job, I think, of of letting their public get back to normal everyday life. And so they're able to play in uh, the Rugby Championship without any real um, 
problems. But it's gone back to the Tri-Nations just for this year because South Africa are still having a bit of trouble with, with COVID, so they've chosen not to take part. But the story of that tournament is Argentina. They, um, they beat New Zealand last week uh, for the first time ever, I believe. And uh, this past Saturday morning, they were able to hold Australia to a 15-all draw, which I really like to see because Argentina, we kind of know them as a tier one nation. They're a decent outfit, but they were they were kind of the the bottom of the of the pecking order in the rugby championship, but which is no real fault of their own because they're they're in there with elite nations in New Zealand, South Africa and, and Australia. But it's good to see teams like them and Japan become more competitive because it it's just better for the sport overall if there are a higher if there are more high level teams that can consistently churn out entertaining and really close games. Yeah, it is. That's true. Um, it is good. It's good, like, just nearly as a neutral, because you don't always want to see teams like New Zealand walk away, uh, like, with easy wins. And um, But, yeah, it is good to see nations like Argentina and Japan. Japan, of course, the kind of the big story of the last World Cup as well. They, were, they, went, they did quite well at that. So, yeah, no, it is, it is good to see for um, neutrals and like in any sport it, as long as it's competitive it'll always be entertaining uh, before we move on as you can see on the screen there we are on Twitter and Instagram so if you want to give us a follow you can can you can at DCUFM Sport uh, we've got plenty of content on there if you can't get enough of us for just one hour on a Monday but uh, moving on and there was plenty of soccer to talk about Yes, there absolutely was. I think the majority of Irish football fans are delighted that the Premier League has finally returned. Um, starting with probably the best watch of the kind of it was the biggest game of the weekend. It was the Mourinho and Guardiola rivalry was reignited in Spurs and City. Spurs coming away with a two 0 win. Um, it was it was an absolutely vintage Mourinho display. I think really counter attacking stuff and City. Um, Dominated early on, but it was just Mourinho's kind of counter attack. But it kind of it kind of raises questions as to what really is going on with City at the moment. Like the big games, they don't really seem to have as much punch. Like they were they weren't bad against Liverpool before the international break, but they weren't the height that they once were. Um, I guess the question is what really what's going on is is this is Guardiola kind of at the end of his run in England, or what do you think? What do you think their problem is? It's really tough to say because it's it from the outside, not a lot has changed except for the fact that Vincent Company isn't there anymore. Mm. And last season, you could kind of understand that because Vincent Company is such a hard man to replace. But they've been without him a year now, so it it would it would stand to reason that they've kind of gotten used to that. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's it's a full-blown crisis. I think it's just more of a testament to the high, high standards that City have set for themselves that if they're not running away with the league before Christmas or at the very, very least at the top of the table, then there's kind of, there's something wrong. But yeah, going back to the match, Mourinho, wow, it was... It was a Mourinho masterclass, really, because 
it was it was a throwback to the days of his first season in England where he would establish a position of dominance and then he would just choke the life out of the game. Even when City were coming forward and, and creating chances, which they did, even when they went 2-0 down, you never really felt that they were going to make anything of it because Mourinho is just so good at at just putting a game where he needs it to be and shutting things down. And I'm I'm sure it's really personally satisfying for Mourinho. I, I, I don't know if he's ever beaten Guardiola or I'm, I'm almost certainly doesn't have a winning record against him. But it was just a way to set to show to Guardiola, but also the entire footballing public that not even just Tottenham are in a position to win the league. It's more I'm just as good as I ever was. Yeah, I think um yeah, no, I definitely it'd be, this season is a very personal one for him, I think. I think the way that he has Spurs playing, it's kind of I think a lot of people wrote him off after his time at United and there was a lot of talk of oh he's finished and he's not in touch with modern football. But I mean he's got Spurs top of the table. He's got them he's got them playing out of their skin really and they they absolutely are title contenders this year um like he has the likes of Kane and Son firing on all cylinders uh another talking point from the game was it wasn't as big as some other decisions this weekend but VAR again took took some of the spotlight with the Gabriel Jesus handball I don't know if you saw or if you thought it was the correct decision the laws the laws of handball these days are just it's 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 not really open to interpretation, is it? I mean, it that that's the thing with with VAR is you kind of have to follow the rules to the letter. So even if even if the ref felt it um, feels one way, he has to go by the strict rules of handball that they've written down. And we could debate for ages about whether handball itself is 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 what it should be in the rules. But I don't think it had a major impact on the game in all, in all in, in the grand scheme of things because I think even either way Mourinho would have just had it the way he wanted it. It was just it was kind of his day. And and Mourinho I, I was I was gonna say this, I forgot to say it. Um I think one of the reasons why Mourinho has been so successful with Spurs is um, he's got them to buy in entirely. With United, it, I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but there was that feeling that he never really got the players to fully buy into his way of doing things. Yeah. It, it's a similar problem that he had with Real Madrid. At Chelsea, they bought in and they had all the success in the world. And I feel like Spurs are doing the same. And if they can just keep going the way they are, which, you know, it is, it's not a guarantee, but it's looking good at the moment, then they will almost certainly be in the title hunt come the end of the season. Yeah, absolutely. I think he, I think it suits Mourinho when his team have an underdog kind of mentality. Um, the one team that certainly don't have an underdog mentality is Liverpool. With their 3-0 win against Leicester, they now move to 64 league games unbeaten at home. Uh, it's an incredible record, and it was made all the more impressive by the fact that they have a depleted squad at the moment. It was a 
weakened team and they still cruised to a 3-0 win against Leicester. I would say I was somewhat disappointed with how Leicester set up. It was very defensive from Brendan Rodgers. I feel like they didn't go for enough. Um, but I mean, still all credit to Liverpool, a completely weak inside. And I guess the question is, what exactly is it that Klopp has? Like, is it just his man management is that good that he makes them completely believe? Or is it this prowess of Anfield that even, even without a crowd cheering them on, it's still their house? I guess the real question is like, what, how has he got them playing this well, even with half their, half their starters missing? I think it's a little bit of both. I think Anfield now does have that fear factor that may, some a place like Old Trafford had back in the day, which might go some way to explaining why Leicester set up the way they did. They just they were focused on not losing as opposed to winning, and and of course they did lose. But yeah, I think Klopp has um, influenced every single member of that squad. It's it's like Mourinho, but while Mourinho kind of has to pull everyone into line to mm. kind of fo- make them follow his way, the the players on the Liverpool squad just believe in Klopp and are willing to to do anything for him just because out of out of personal loyalty. Uh, you saw that with um, with their win against Barcelona in the Champions League a couple of years ago. Another game where they were without Mohamed Salah. They just they just believe in their manager. They believe in the process, and they believe that at Anfield they can do anything. Yeah, absolutely. You can see that their belief is definitely there, and it's um, it's a clear example of a manager's influence. Another another manager making quite the impact is Carlo Ancelotti with Liverpool's city neighbours Everton, uh, who bet Fulham three two in the end, but. Um, Everyone going forward are an absolute joy to watch, I think. I think the third goal to Corey's header is a prime example of that. In my in my notes about the match, I just have Hamez in block capitals. <laughs> he he is just an amazing footballer. The the third goal in particular gets the ball on the edge of the box, outside the boot, puts it right in the corner for Digne, first time ball in. And Decore doesn't have to check his run or anything to head at home. It Ancelotti has them just playing such fluid football. I would say they are a bit susceptible at the back, as you can see by the final result. And they were slightly lucky with the fact that Ivan Caballero put his penalty nearly into orbit. But um but they we talked about them last week as kind of almost like the dark horse of the league. Where do you think they can push for top four? It depends. I mean, they're a terrific attacking side, like you said. They're, they're, they're the modern-day entertainers, like when Newcastle were in 1996. Mm. Um, and they will have to shore up at the back, but I can't see why they won't challenge, at least for top four. Um, I didn't really see it coming at the start of the season. Um, everyone was saying, oh, they've got Ancelotti, they've got Hammers now. And I thought, yeah, they're good, but I'm not quite ready to buy in just yet. But then the season started and away they went. And, and they, they had their wobble um, against the likes of uh, Liverpool. But, you know, it's a bit like Leicester. They've, they had set such high standards for themselves. Then, and when they started to be a bit more like the Everton we all know and love, 
um, people just went, oh, that's it. They're rubbish. They're not going to get anywhere. Um, but, yeah, James is the difference, I think. I think it's so wonderful that a, not just a player of his calibre is in the league playing for a team like Everton, but that he's trying. I was really concerned that he would be a bit like Paul Pogba and yeah. try to just and just expect everything to fall into place for him. And if it didn't, he would kind of he would sulk a bit and he wouldn't give it his all. But he seems just so determined. He sees this as this amazing challenge, and he's going to attack it with both with both hands or both feet, I suppose. Uh, and some of his play, not just today or this this weekend, but throughout the whole season has been really, really good. And with with teams like Arsenal and United not looking too impressive, I I don't think they'll eventually get top four. I think that'll go to Liverpool, uh, Spurs, uh, City and Leicester. But I I think they're well within their rights to believe that they can challenge for the Champions League. Yeah, no, they absolutely are. And I think there's no better manager for Hammers to play under than Ancelotti. Um, you actually you mentioned the two teams we're going to move on to. United and Arsenal, both disappointing this season and particularly this weekend. Uh, starting with United, a 1-0 win against West Brom. Highly unconvincing. Yeah, um, they relied on the magic of penalties again. Yeah, I don't think there's any. Don't think there's a more fortunate person from twelve yards than Bruno Fernandez. Fifty percent of his goals have come from penalties for United, and like he is quite fortunate with the fact that they're really clamping down on keepers coming off the line. Yeah, that's the second time that's happened, hasn't it? The first was in the Champions League. Yeah, it was against PSG, and VAR, as always, is a talking point. I think West Brom. I thought they were hard done by with the. Uh, with the penalty that wasn't given, there was another game. Where was it? I think it was. Yeah, it was in Brighton. I think Brighton Villa. I think it was a similar decision, similar kind of tackle, and it wasn't given as well. I found. I I I thought that would have been given. I don't know what you thought of the foul. Is this the Harry Maguire foul? Yeah, in the West Brom game. Yeah. Mm, it's tough. It's. We 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 weren't supposed to be having these debates when Farah came along. They were supposed to clean it all up, but if anything has made it worse. Yeah. It's 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 tough. I mean, I, I can see it either way. There was a, a shin to shin connection, but he, I feel like he did get just a nick of the ball that there was enough doubt there. But then again, with the clear and obvious error, it's really, really difficult to say. Yeah. I think ultimately, I don't know if it was a clear and obvious error because there was definite contact. So, yeah, I can understand West Brom feeling hard done by, but I, I don't think they did enough to win the game. I don't think United did enough to win the game either, actually. So... Ultimately, it's a match that leaves us with more questions than answers about United, about VAR, about how West Brom will fare as a whole this season because they weren't they weren't terrific either. And 
United have never been more open to be attacked as they are right now. So overall, no matter what side of the fence you're on, or even if you're on the fence, a deeply unsatisfying game. Yeah, it was. Um, speaking of unsatisfying, well, unsatisfying performances, I think, more than the game itself, Arsenal leads finished nil nil and we talked last week about we could see Leeds getting a result here because the issue with Arsenal is you never know which one's going to turn up and it certainly wasn't the most the free-flowing attacking Arsenal that uh the kind of style of football they're synonymous with the major talking point is Nicola Pepe's complete just combustion uh, oh, he, he, had, he had a number done on him there. He was absolutely baited into that. It was, it was, it was, it was shades of Roy Keane versus Alfie Haaland in uh, what was it, two thousand and no, it was nineteen ninety-seven. Mm. Uh, this was before. This isn't the tackle that ended Haaland's career. This was before that. In, in that game, Haaland was nibbling at Keane all day, and he finally had enough, and he lunged for him and. Ended up doing his cruise yet. Now, Pepe, it's two different things. Pepe got sent off, but yeah, he was absolutely baited into that. It was actually, it was terrific work from Leeds just to get him wound up and wound up and wound up and finally he snapped. Yeah, it was the fairness from Alioski to push him all the way. But I guess that is, that is kind of, um, I guess that's just his age, his young age kind of and not, not remembering to stay, try, try and stay calm at least. But, mm. uh, the other talking points from that game are, I guess, questions have to be asked of Mikel Arteta. Or is that too harsh? Because I, I was thinking about this and there's a lot of talk about is it any different to Emery. But, I mean, they have an FA Cup and they've been up and down, I guess. I I think the, the red card definitely stifled them. But I guess I guess the question really is a club of Arsenal's, uh, of Arsenal's um, standard with someone like Arteta the Helm, is he, it's kind of a similar question asked of Lampard and Solskjaer, is he the right man for a club that size? Well, this is the thing. I think he is the right man for the job because I don't think Arsenal are of that standard anymore. I mean, where did they finish in the league last year? 10th? Somewhere, might have been. Yeah, actually, yeah, because they've gone to Europa League to the cup, so. Yeah, um, so I think Arsenal are kind of putting their expectations a bit too high nowadays i think they need to to temper things somewhat i know there are many fans that um, remember the glory days of the invincibles like it was yesterday but the reality of the situation is they're light years away so um i think arteta could build them back up to a position where they're consistently challenging for europe and i think they're gonna have to be happy with that for the time being yeah um and Leeds, look, they have looked quite good like since they've arrived. Um, I think keeping a clean sheet will always be positive. They were unlucky at times. I feel Rodrigo hit the post. Uh, Rafinha, who I thought was very productive in this game, uh, hit the post. And so did Bamford. Leeds finished the game with 24 attempts. I think it was Arsenal finished with nine. Where, where do you see Leeds finishing this season? Honestly, I like them for mid-table. I think every kind of game for them this season will kind of be the honeymoon phase Mm. because they waited so long to get back into the top flight that they're just going to 
appreciate every game for what it is. I think the second season syndrome might come to to bite them, but I think they'll they'll be like what Reading were in their first season back in two thousand and seven. They just um, shocked everyone because by, with how well they played. They ended up finishing eighth, just outside the Europa League places. Um, I, I I do like them. I think they um, they have a, they have a really good. Uh, attacking style of football with a great coach. It's just um, it didn't the pieces didn't fall into place for them uh, on on the Sunday, despite them clearly being the better team. So I think they'll do pretty well. Yeah, they they look good for their money. Um, and then just to wrap up with the Premier League, the other results: Chelsea being Newcastle two nil. Timo Werner looked quite good actually in that game, and it seems like he looked more than quite good. He looked like he looked like a world beater. I thought, um, yeah. but it was very much a case of Chelsea being Chelsea and Newcastle being Newcastle. Chelsea, the hype is real. The hype is absolutely real. They've got a very very deep squad of of, mm. of talented young players, and. I think they have a really underappreciated manager in Lampard. Yeah, I hear all these questions about, oh, are, is Lampard ready? Is Solskjaer ready? Is Arteta ready? All these managers that we remember not too long ago were players. But Lampard's the real deal. I really think that he is going to do really good things with this Chelsea team this season. And um, I'd be expecting the... A, a, a modest push for the title. They might not win it, but they'll they'll be in the hunt and a pretty deep run into Europe too. Mm, that's that's interesting because that was one of the things I was going to ask is about Lampard being good for the job. I I don't know. He has them. He, they they are a bit inconsistent at times. I think, um, and I feel like what happens really with them is they get to the big games and he gets tactically. Outdone, like they they'll go and play Spurs, and Mourinho will set up perfectly for him. I, he doesn't he doesn't have the nous as those managers, but he's probably he's probably the safest out of kind of the three former players that are currently managing in the league. Um, but that that is a huge part of that is due to the squad. It'll be interesting to see where they finish. They could maybe do have a nice run in Europe, and I yeah I probably will be expecting them to get uh, top four. Just quickly as well, you mentioned when we were talking about Leeds and your concerns about second season syndrome. A team that has definitely been feeling... I think they're second season. Actually, maybe they're not. Sheffield United? I think they are second season. It's just how, yeah. mad, how mad good they were the first time. Yeah. But no, the, the, the honeymoon is over for them. Yeah, one point from nine games. It's um, very concerning for Sheffield. Um, and that's really the Premier League stuff. Uh, if we have time to go, over. yeah, I think we have a bit of time to talk about um, one of the Champions League games. The I think the standout game inexplicably is Manchester United versus Istanbul Besiktas, and the only reason that's in any way interesting is because United lost to them last time out. Yeah, and United's kind of teetering on the old kind of Arsenal cliche of you don't know which one you're going to get because they seem they're a fantastic team sometimes in Europe they'll turn up and then they're not that consistent in the league um I you are you just imagine at home 
I know Old Trafford doesn't have the same fear factor, but you'd imagine at home they should kind of be able to see it through. And the main thing you'd hope for is that the defence decides to sort itself out because it was absolutely shambolic the last time against them. Um, the other big game in that group, PSG and Leipzig. I think it was Leipzig won the last one. Uh, it did, I think, yeah. yeah. And PSG are coming off a, a loss in the French League this weekend. Oh, are they? Who's yeah. That? Who do they? Uh, Monaco, I think. I think they uh, they lost the two 0 lead. Oh, um, yeah. I was gonna. I, they're at home as well, but Nigelsman's a he's a savvy coach. I I think I fancy Leipzig. I fancy Leipzig to top the group. To be honest, I don't think United will beat them the second time round. And oh, who's 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 not going to qualify? United or PSG? I don't know. It comes down. It comes down to. I think do you, PSG have to come to Old Trafford? They do, yeah. That I think you might have the psychological advantage because they beat them in Paris. Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't be surprised because I know, I know, like kind of everyone's expecting PSG to really push on there after making the final last year. But to be honest, I think that was just a flash in the pan for them. Really, I they're not set up for this kind of tournament. They don't have it's the character. It's not like Brendan Rodgers here, but um, it it is their kind of character that comes into question, particularly in Europe. And I think United might just get through that group uh we've just got enough time to talk about one more thing and it's, it's uh something we we mentioned we talk about this week um project big picture and the european premier league were big ideas that were floated in the i suppose the off season mm-hmm. in terms of monetizing football more we saw that a bit with pay-per-view but how do you how do you feel about that? Is it is it just a cash grab, or is there any way that it could benefit the game? Uh, no, I don't. Particularly with the European Super League, I can't see it benefiting anyone. It completely destroys the allure of the Champions League. Like the whole reason you watch Champions League is because very rarely do you see you know like a Barcelona play a Liverpool, but if that's happening twice a season, it. Mm loses that kind of appeal i i don't know it's a, it is slightly a scary thought to think that it could happen um project big picture seems a bit more plausible uh the initial proposal is ludicrous um it's parts of it are honest, with project big picture, there are some things that do work because yeah. they talked about getting rid of the league cup and the charity shields which mm. i'm um I wouldn't. I wouldn't hate. I think the League Cup is a bit of a redundant tournament, and the Charity Shield. I know that's the big curtain raiser, but like I said last week, you could just have the Premiership champions versus the Championship champions, and have that be the new tradition. Yeah, and they did say. Sorry, sorry. Go on there. Um, and the other, there are. Yeah, you're right. There are positives from a like the 250 million payment up front to the EFL. Um. See, that it strikes me as shady because it does feel like, yeah, we'll give you what you need to survive as long as we can be your overlords. Yeah, that the big issue is that the power goes to like nine of the big clubs, which is questionable. But there's stuff I've seen where they talk about how this is kind of the first almost draft of it they try to get through. That's been rejected. And they imagine that they'll come back with it, but it'll be changed. So I don't know if the voting thing will stay 
another thing that I think they want to bring in is to try and start um, kind of funneling through safe standing, which I think would be a brilliant addition to the Premier League, kind of getting back almost somewhat to the terraces. That kind of atmosphere would be incredible once like fans would come back. So overall, I think Project Big Picture has a f- it has some positive things, but the kind of overall the motive behind it, I think, is completely wrong. Yeah, I think um, football fans are going to have to be very, very vigilant um, for stuff like this to come again because I think and this is this is me putting my cynical hat on. One thing that this lockdown period of football is is showing some of the richer owners in the league is that maybe they don't need the fans. Maybe they could just get their money from elsewhere and they can afford in their pockets to to lock the fans out of um, their priorities. So we'll, as football fans, we'll just have to keep a very close eye on things. But that's a discussion for another time, perhaps next week, where we hope you'll join us. But that's it for this week of Action Replay. We're back again next Monday at 2 p.m. We'll be looking back on the hurling semifinals. We'll be looking forward to the football semifinals. Plus, we'll be looking at Premier League, Champions League, anything and everything in the world of sport we'll be covering right here on the show. Uh, Sean, as always, thanks for being with me. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Twitter and Instagram is at DCUFM Sport. Uh, I've been Sean Breslin. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.